Welcome to the Devoted City Church podcast. Our mission is to help people find, trust, and follow Jesus. To learn more about our church, visit devotedcity.com. In today's episode, you'll hear a message from our lead pastor, Donnie Williams, or a member of our teaching team. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being at Devoted City Church today. If you're watching online, thank you for checking out Devoted City. And if you're at our Cary campus, thank you so much for showing up today uh, to hear uh, a little bit about a mission partner. So today is the last day in mission partner month. And if you're in one of our rooms, uh, there's a card in your seat that says mission partner on it. If you're watching online, there's a link in uh, the chat, or uh, you can just text the number on the screen and you can get all the information about mission partner and fill out a card digitally right there. But even if you've already done that, and many of you have, I wanna encourage you at the end of the service, we'll tell you when it's time, Uh, If you're in one of our rooms, you'll be able to come down and lay this card on the front of either stage and become a mission partner. Now, we did this all month. So for many of you, this is repetition. You've heard me say this already. But for a lot of you, it's not. And so here's here's why we do this thing called mission partner. We do it because we want to be able to care for people spiritually in the most effective way possible. And so by having people that say, I commit to being a partner in the mission of helping people find trust and follow Jesus, we know, well, who are the people that are in? Who are the people that say, this is my church family? This is my church home. You may have something going on in your life where you need help and we hear about it and we can get in touch with you and we could shepherd and care for you in the best way possible. It helps the leaders of this church lead people better as together We're all about the mission of helping people find, trust, and follow Jesus. Now, who can be a mission partner? Anybody that has said yes to Jesus and followed him. Uh, Anybody that uh, that has been baptized. Uh, You saw a couple people get baptized. If you're at our North Raleigh campus, we're gonna have six total baptisms today. That's amazing. That means, that makes 48 people who have followed Christ since January 1st in baptism. If you uh, have, you need to take a look at our belief statement on our website. There's no surprises there, but take a look. Familiarize yourself with it. Acknowledge that and be engaged in the mission of the church. That's who can be a mission partner. Now, after you become a mission partner, what does a mission partner do? That's a great question. Well, you're doing 25% of it right now. You're here. You're watching. You showed up. But other things are very important. If you say, this is my church and my church family, I wanna be a mission partner, it means that you attend. It means that you serve on a team. We have ways to serve in our church at our gatherings. We have ways to serve if you watch online. We have ways to serve if you're passionate about serving in the community. There's a lot of different ways you can serve and we can help you identify that and get on one of those serve teams. A mission partner is also someone that says, I'm going to take it beyond just sitting here or watching for an hour on Sunday. I'm going to do more than that. I want to be involved in a group of people outside of this time together we call a worship service. And then a person that says, I want to be a mission partner, another thing they do is they give generously to the mission of the church because it is your generosity. Number one, it helps you grow spiritually. And number two, it moves the mission of the church forward as we help people find trust and follow Jesus, not just here in our city, but around the world. So that's what it means to be 
a mission partner and what a mission partner does. Once a year, we're going to do this mission partner month. Other than that, you can hear about it at our move events that we have every other month. You can hear about mission partner by going to the next steps table. If like a few weeks from now, you're like, what was that all about? Just ask somebody out at next steps or at any time you want to, you can text partner to that number that's on the screen and you can become a mission partner. This idea came about quite a while ago when I was reading in Philippians chapter one and I read the apostle Paul saying these words. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What he's saying is from the first day you heard the gospel, you became a partner in also sharing the gospel. And that's what a mission partner does. That word partner or partnership comes from a Greek word that's pronounced koinonia. It's also translated fellowship in other areas of the New Testament, but it means association, community, or joint participation. So you'll be able to fill out this card, just briefly put any information you want on there and drop it at the front of the two stages, no matter which location you're at, when the band comes back up at the end and we sing together. Let's pray as we start uh, the next part of this series follow. God, as we consider, as this room full of people, people watching, consider being a mission partner of Devoted City Church, God, I pray that you would prompt people who know this is their church family to say, yes, I'm in on the mission of this church. God, thank you for so many people who have followed you in baptism this year. And may you continue to work in the hearts and lives of people who hear this and experience what's happening at our church that they too could make a decision for Christ today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this series called Follow, uh, today I'm talking about community, which is perfect because that's what we're asking you to commit to is your church community. But community like the, uh, we've also talked about what it means to surrender, what it means to serve, uh, what it means to be born again. And today, what does it mean to be involved in Christian community? That's a different kind of community than any other community on the face of the earth. Because when we're talking about following Jesus, when it comes to community, we feel the same tension that we feel with everything else. Is that the world has a way of doing community and the family of God has a way of doing community and we're constantly pulled one way or the other. Do you ever feel that pull? I do. Do you ever feel the pull of the strength of the world versus the strength of the family of God. That's why we did this series is to say, well, if we're gonna follow Jesus, what does it look like to allow the strength of God and the family of God to have more pull in my life than the world does in my life? Because we all live in the world, we can't escape it. We're here, so we gotta discern, well, how do I make sure I'm being pulled more towards the kingdom of God than I am towards the kingdom of this world? We can look in the book of Acts and see how the first church had community, how they operated, who their friends were, what they did day to day. If you've never read the book of Acts, it's a great way to see the example of the ancient church in its purest form and what it should look like. And we can imitate that today. We can have the same things they had. In Acts chapter four, 
beginning at verse 32, here's a snapshot of what community looked like in the first church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So all these believers, that phrase, all these believers, literally means the multitude of believers. Tens of thousands were one in heart and one in mind. Did that mean they agreed on everything? No, because you read the book of Acts, you see pretty quickly they started disagreeing about things. But they had unity and one of mind around the essentials, around what was important, around who was Jesus, around the resurrection of Christ, around the truth of his word, around the way that he forgives our sins and calls us to live in a different way. They had unity around that. To think that unity means that we have to agree on every single thing means that we could only have it if you, if you agree with me, right? Or I agree with you. No, we, we can have disagreements and still have unity. If you're married, you know how that works. My Cinda and I don't agree on everything, but we have unity in the places that matter. We have unity around the word of God, unity about how to raise our family, unity about how to act and interact with people around us. We have unity around that. But probably like in your marriage, one person leans one way, one person leans another on any given topic. Like I am the spender in our family. I enjoy spending. She enjoys saving. If it were all up to me, we probably would be homeless and in debt. But because we come together in our unity and we work it out the same way they did in the first century. So when it says they had unity, it means that they worked in the middle of their disagreements and had unity around the things that mattered. And the result of that was God's grace powerfully worked among them. And there were people who had need. It was, it was an impoverished culture. Now, we have an impoverished culture. It's just not physically impoverished. See, we're some of the richest poor people on the face of the planet because the poverty that exists in our world is more often spiritual poverty than physical poverty. And so the, the description of they sold land and they sold houses and they gave that money to the church so the church could help those in need well, if you need to do that, then do that. That's not a command to do that. What we see there is they were willing to give up what they had to help with the needs of others. And that's what the example is all through scripture. That's how they did it. But you might do it another way. But the church, when it operates in the community that God meant for it to be, meets each other's needs, physically and spiritually. So when you're choosing a community to be involved with, because we all do that, we all make a choice. Who are the friends I'm gonna have? Who are the people I'm gonna hang out with? Who are the people I'm gonna get an example about life and from life for? Who are the people I'm gonna have fun with? Who is that? Well, here's some facts about the community around you. 
Community that's not based on faith in Christ will never be what you need. And it's important that you pay attention to who your community is. Because the community you choose to be a part of will determine the direction of your life. In my greatest moments, in my worst mistakes, at my most difficult times, I can remember the people around me who helped me through it. I mean, we all have those friends that, you know, will tell us what we need to hear. Anybody got one of those? If you don't, you need one. Like, they'll tell you if your fly is down. They'll tell you if uh, you got toilet paper on your shoe or a booger hanging out. They'll tell you, hey, man, you need to kind of clean out there a little bit. You're embarrassing yourself. If you don't have a friend like that, you need one. Because what they're doing is helping you not embarrass yourself. But I've seen it more serious than that. I've seen people ready to call it quits in marriage, ready to go back to the bottle or whatever addiction they were dealing with. And it was a friend that kept them from going back to where they used to be. We all need that kind of friend. Now, you've probably heard this stat before. Many authors, psychologists, I've heard this many times for many years, and it's true. You become like the five people you hang around the most. You become like the five people you hang around the most. In other words, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Everything I ever did to get myself in trouble, I was with a group of people that I chose to be with who were probably saying, yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. They end up in trouble. But see, the right community doesn't just keep us out of trouble. It can propel us forward. There's few things that can play as vital of a role than being involved in a positive faith-based Christian community of friends. I mean, some of the most important decisions we'll make are things like school and our major and where we're gonna live and who we're gonna marry and what our career's gonna be. All those will have an impact on our lives, but none of those will have the impact that the people you choose to do life with will have on you. So how do you choose well? Because who you choose as your closest friends will influence your future. There's a guy in the, New, in, the, in the Old Testament that was called the wisest man who ever lived. That's what God said about him. His name was Solomon. And Solomon gives us a lot of wisdom for life. And he also gave us some wisdom about who to hang out with and who not to hang out with. Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. Now Solomon's giving us a promise and he's giving us a warning. You want to become wise? Get with wise people. You want to hang out with fools? Then you're going to suffer harm. When I first decided I was going to get married, when we first decided we were going to have kids, I didn't have a great example of either of those things growing up. So I knew, well, if I'm going to be a good husband and I'm going to be a good father, I need a good example. So I got with who I perceived to be the most godly, wise men, and I said, tell me how to be a husband. And then later, I got with another or several wise men, and I said, tell me how to be a dad. I need to know. And I'd listen to their counsel, and I'd listen to what they did because they were wise and they'd raised great kids. One of them just recently retired and I sent him a text and I said, hey, I just wanna say 
that when I was in my early 20s, you gave me advice and you helped me. You helped me walk with Jesus. You helped me be a better husband and that eventually led to me being the dad that God had called me to be because of his wisdom. So you wanna be wise? Get around wise people. And who wants to be wise? Raise your hand. Look, even, even on the screen, come on, raise your hand. You want to be wise? Of course, we all want to be wise. Watch what wise people do and act like them. It's not that difficult. I want to be wise. That person's wise. I'm going to hang out with them. But then Solomon says, a companion of fools suffers harm. Now, he doesn't say if you hang out with fools, you become a fool. See, a fool is someone who knows the difference between right and wrong, and they just don't care. It doesn't matter. And if you hang around with people like that, you will suffer harm. And the the word for companion just means does life with. If you do life with fools, you will suffer harm. And we all know somebody who's gotten themselves in trouble, gotten themselves in jail, gotten kicked out of school, or even worse. And then we hear, they were such a good kid. They just got around the wrong group of people. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever said that? Oh, he was doing so great. She was doing great. And they just got in with the wrong group of people. And because of that, they suffered harm. That's what Solomon is talking about. Every time I've done something right in my life and had success, it's because I chose to be around the right people. Because by nature, we kind of make the wrong decisions. And so we need some collective wisdom in order to make the right decisions. And that principle is still true today. Now, you might think, wait a minute. Jesus hung out with sinners or fools. He hung out with them. People love to say that. People that want to shape Jesus into their image say that a lot. Wait, Jesus hung out with sinners? How can you say don't get around people like that? Because Jesus hung out with them. And what they're referring to are several scriptures. I'm going to read one of them from Luke chapter 5, where Jesus, in fact, did hang out with sinners. This is what it says. Then Levi, now Levi was uh, also Matthew. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors were hated in Jerusalem because they were Jews working for the Roman government, taking money from their own people. So they were hated. Like, they were the... You know, they were the first century equivalent of an IRS agent. If you're an IRS agent, you probably don't have great friends that will like share anything with you. I hope you have good friends, but it would be hard if your best friend's an IRS agent, like, hey, I'm gonna do this vacation and um, I'm gonna do a little work and I, I'm gonna deduct that whole thing. You wouldn't say that to an IRS agent. And while, yes, they're honest, there's some of them honest, that's what the perception was of the first century tax collector. They were dishonest because they did take a little money off the top. And so the people they associated with were also dishonest. And here's Jesus hanging out with them. It says, Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, Jesus hung out with sinners then we should hang out with sinners. That's right, we should. It's not that hanging out with those who are far from God is wrong, 
but we have to do it with the right perspective. The same perspective that Jesus had. See, the religious leaders were confused by that. They thought, well, why would a holy man hang out with unholy people? Because those religious leaders in that day, they thought they were better than everybody else. And if you've been around Christians very long, there's, there's, those can exist. You know, Christians that think, well, I'm right about everything and you're wrong about everything. And if you don't do it this way, and, and how could you do that? Or how could you wear that? Or how could you say that? And they have, a, you know, it's pretty easy for them to look down from their big high tower of faith in somebody else's life. That's what these religious people were doing to Jesus. But as followers of Jesus, we don't do that. I want you to think of the most despicable person you can think of right now to you. They are made in the image of God. They are. Here's a way to check your heart. Is there any person you would not pray for and want God's best for? If you can't answer that in the affirmative, you need to look in the mirror and you've got something you need to work on because every person on the face of the earth, including those vile sinners that Jesus was hanging out and having dinner with, are made in the image of our holy God. And they're deserving of our conversation and our kindness. Now, wait, you just said, Donnie, that friends determine my future to watch out who I hang out with. And now you say, we can hang out with sinners. Now, there's a couple ways people approach that. One is, well, we're all sinners, so we can just do anything we want. We're not all sinners. Once you say, I believe in Jesus, I trust in him to forgive my sins, I acknowledge him as Lord and Savior in my life, sin no longer defines you ever. You might sin, you will sin, but it doesn't define you anymore. So if you're a child of God, if you've trusted in him, you believe him, he has forgiven your sins, you followed him and obeyed him, sinner will never define you again. And when you start hearing things like, well, we're all sinners, that's the quickest way to compromise God's truth about you. And you need to be suspect of anybody's motives that says, well, we're all sinners, so who am I to say anything about someone who sins? That's not true. That's not biblical. Jesus told them why he was hanging out with sinners. Here's what he said. Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He compared sinners to physically ill people that needed help. If I started staggering around and grabbed my chest and couldn't breathe and fell on the floor, I think a few people might come up and see if I'm okay. And you're gonna call an ambulance. You're gonna take care of me because I'm sick and I need attention. That's the way Jesus was looking at these sinners. They're sick. They're caught in their sin. They need attention. And so I'm gonna hang out with them. Two things Jesus never did though. He never affirmed their sin. Not one time did he say, hey, it's fine that you're doing what you're doing. I just wanna have dinner with you. No, he was having dinner with them in order to confront them about their sin. So he never let them think it was okay to be where they were. Jesus also called them to repentance. Now, if you're not willing to do what Jesus did, then don't quote him and say, well, yeah, we're supposed to hang out with sinners. Do it, but do it for the reason Jesus did it, to call the sick people to repentance. 
to call the people who are spiritually sick to the only one who can heal them. That's why we would hang out with sinners. That's why Jesus did. And if you can't do that, then no, don't hang out with people who are far from God. I am thankful that the unbelieving friends I had, or the believing friends I had in my life when I was an unbeliever, hung out with me in the middle of my sin and recognized I was caught in my sin and cared about me to, in a kind way, share the message of Christ with me. It worked, and I responded. So if you don't have unbelieving friends in your community, you should. Now, if your faith is too weak to confront, you need to grow up spiritually. And when we confront, we do it in a kind way. Kindness doesn't, or firmness doesn't have to be rude. Being resolved doesn't have to be rude. And so don't confront so you can do it in a kind way. Now you might think, well, who am I to confront? I don't know, I can't confront people. You are a child of God and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the forgiveness God gives you. You have God's word behind you. You are the perfect person to confront sin in someone else's life. But what if I lose their friendship? You might. You might. But what if they listen? What if they listen? I was asked one time many years ago when I was young in ministry, this this person who I was a friend with, he got caught in sin, sexual sin, uh, betraying his wife multiple times over and over. They had all the evidence. I was shocked. I didn't know. They called me up. Donnie, we're going to have an intervention. We want you to be there. We need you to get him there to this room. When you walk in the room, the whole family's going to be there. We need you to pull your chair over by the door and sit by the door so he can't get out. And I was like, okay, well, (laughs) that's a big request. He's bigger than me. What if he wants me to move? He won't have much trouble getting me out of the way. But I did it. I went and looked at, well, what do you, like, what evidence? And I went and looked at it, saw, yes, it's absolutely happening. And they went around the room and they confronted him, person after person who was in his life, about the sin that he was hiding and the sin he was trapped in. And I went last. I confronted him. And then he had a choice to make. Am I going to receive this or reject this? He received it. He was broken. He looked at me with tears streaming down his face. And he said, Donnie, that's not the real me. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know how I kept this hidden for so long. He left there. He went through some pretty significant therapy. He died a couple years ago, loving his wife, faithful to his wife, and loving Jesus. All because some people cared enough to confront. So you might say, well, what if they don't like me anymore? But what if they, what if they listen? What if years down the road they say, you know, that's the only person who would stand up for what's true in my life, and now here I am in this sin all these years later, and they're gonna look back and say, they stood for truth and they cared about me enough to put their fears aside and risk our friendship to confront so don't worry about, well, what, what, if they, what if I lose the friendship? You might do that, but what if they listen? Confrontation is not easy. But just because confrontation is not easy doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're okay with people going to hell. It's either confrontation or hell. What do you want to do? What do you want to be uncomfortable with? Here's the thing. The right community can propel you forward and give you the strength 
to confront where you need to confront. But the wrong community, here's what that'll do to you. The wrong group of friends. Hey, in next service, here at our North Raleigh campus, all of our high school and middle school kids, they all sit right here and fill this up. I'm gonna come right down there in front and I'm gonna say to them, you all need to listen to me. Listen, because if you get in the wrong community, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna be tempted to compromise over and over and over again. It will be a temptation. It will look appealing to you. You will rationalize compromising God's truth. And if you're in the wrong community and you have the wrong group of friends, that's gonna happen over and over and over again. The wrong community will distract you from God's plan. You'll never live the right life with the wrong friends. It won't happen. You have gifts that will never be realized if you choose the wrong community. Because you're moving toward Christ, they're moving away from Christ. How could that be your primary community and support? Parents, listen to me. When you have little kids, like little, like toddler, in elementary school even, you can make them do things. You can make them do things they don't wanna do. I had a friend say to me, this was several years ago, they said, hey, our child refuses to go to youth group, refuses to go to church. Now, they're like a junior, senior in high school at this time. Refuses to, go to high, refuses to go to our high school ministry, refuses to go to church, just won't go. How did you get your girls to go and wanna be there and be such an active part? I said, I made them while, they, while I could make them. Because once they're like 16 and up, you're, not, you're gonna hope and you're gonna, you can try to convince, but you can't force them to do anything. So parents, make them while you can. Make them have strong Christian community because later they'll choose it. And if they're not choosing it later, you can try to convince them, but you can't make them. It will pay off. That's why when I see parents letting their kids do everything but youth group where there's a bunch of imperfect kids that love Jesus getting together and learning how to love Jesus together in our culture, that's something your kids need to be a part of. And to say, no, nah, they'll be all right doing all this other stuff. They got good friends, do they? Don't wait till it's too late. Start now. So make them while you can. Because one day you won't be able to. And it's gonna hurt their little feelings, but they'll be all right. They'll be okay. It'll be just fine. Trust me. Being a good friend and being a godly friend are two different things. Paul wrote to this town of people in Corinth that was a bunch of sinners who accepted Christ. And he reminded them of something in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he said, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? You've probably heard that verse before about how Christians shouldn't marry people who aren't Christians. I believe that's true. And if you have, you haven't sinned. God can still redeem it. But that's the ideal that people who love Jesus come together. But this is talking more about in the world friendships because if you're with people and your life is going toward Jesus and their life is going away from Jesus, one person or the other is going to compromise. That's why Paul says don't get together like that with unbelievers because darkness and light don't have anything in common. See, the wrong community will lead you places you don't wanna go. But the right community, it's gonna help you with your struggles the right community is gonna help you follow God's plan. I've watched people, especially recently at our church, that have gone through very difficult times. Things because what they did, because of what happened to them, because life just threw them a curveball. And nothing gets me more 
excited. It makes me feel more like, hey, we are making a difference. Is when I see someone hurting and I see people in our church surrounding them and loving them and taking care of them. And then I hear, hey, that person did that. And we didn't know anything about it from leadership or staff. They're just taking care of it because they're part of the community. So the right community will help you with your struggles and it'll help you follow God's plan. Hebrews chapter 10 is an encouraging verse. It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's what you need. One of the reasons we say, hey, say yes to being a mission partner is it helps you be in a community of like-minded believers. Now, I want to end by reading the verse in Acts that describes and gives us a snapshot of the first century church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all there, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Imagine all your physical but more importantly, your relational and emotional needs being met because of the community that you've chosen. That's what you can do. So we're gonna, we're gonna sing this last song and, uh, and I'll come back out and, and um, dismiss us after that. But during that song, you see all these cards laid up here from our first service. Just put your name, email, phone number on that. And if you're ready to say, I'm in, I wanna be part of this community. I wanna be a mission partner. Just bring those up both of our campuses, and put it on the stage as a tangible way of saying, I'm in, and I want to be a part of the mission of helping people find, trust, and follow Jesus. If you've already done it through texting, do it again, just so you can have that tangible way of saying, I'm in, and I want to be a part of this. So come and do that as we stand and sing this next song. Thanks for listening to the Devoted City Church Podcast. If you liked today's episode, rate us and subscribe so others can be encouraged too. We invite you to join us on a weekend at one of our locations or online at devotedcity.com.